Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 32. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Thanks, uh, thanks, Karen. If you're new, we mentioned last week, we love having kids in the gathering, but if you just heard the text, obviously we're going to look at it. So if at any point, especially if you're a grade schooler, or maybe this conversation is beyond what you're ready to have with your children or niece or nephew or someone that you brought, please don't feel bad. Uh, the kids' celebration is amazing. And even if they're a little older than it, it's all red and green, and they're giving away free stuff, okay? So... So if you want to go, I won't judge at all. Now, um, we are in the second week in a very important conversation at the beginning of a letter that is good news for everyone. And early on in the letter, what Paul writes about is a clash of worldviews. If you missed last week, today may not make full sense. Last week we talked about everyone having a worldview. Now, what's a worldview? To recap, it's the framework from which we view reality and make sense out of life and the world. Everyone already has a worldview. Your worldview changes because of what you read and see and experience. And a worldview answers the big questions for you in life. Where did I come from? Is there a God? Does it matter? Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Where's the world going? All of those, we don't think about it, are like the foundation that we build a house on, and they're vital. I'm not saying, here's a worldview. I'm saying, you already have a worldview. And Paul, at the beginning of this letter, is saying, your worldview and God's view of the world may not be in sync. So we asked a question last week. Do you have a biblical worldview? What we're saying is part of the way of following Jesus is understanding God has already given a view of the world. And that's why we're so serious about the scriptures. Because we believe fundamentally that God has revealed enough about himself so we can know him, know his ways, and follow him. So it's our joy, responsibility, it's our privilege to find out what God is like, not because he's hiding, but because my view of the world and God may not be shaped 
in the way that he's defined himself. And so a biblical worldview, this is from last week, includes, according to Romans 1, at least the following, probably more, at least the following. Yahweh, as God reveals his own name, he is the creator. You may not believe that. Okay, just you need to know that's where the scriptures sit. In the beginning, God created. The fundamental assumption of all the scriptures is that God was, is, and made. Secondly, we're part of God's creation. We were not the first thing God made. But we are very important if you read Genesis 1 and 2. We're very important. And so God has made himself known to everyone by what he has made. So we saw last week there's not a person on the planet that has a valid excuse and says, well, if God were real, I, he would make himself known. And Paul's already addressed that. He has. We've just turned him off or put our gaze in another direction. And finally, we have chosen to worship created things. The essence of sin is not behavior. The essence of sin is a replacement of God. It's godlessness. It's when you and I choose to say, I don't believe God exists, I don't believe God says, or I believe that my way is better than what God has said. That is the essence of sin. So today, we're going to jump into probably the most difficult and emotionally charged part of Paul's letter. And we're going, to, we're going to face it front on. But I just want you to hear something. Whenever you deal with worldview issues, whenever, whenever you deal with the foundation of a home, the whole house feels it. And so it is not our intention as a leadership team, as a team of elders that lead this body, it is not our intention to inflame anyone or to make anyone mad. We just recognize whenever you touch at a sensitive part of someone's life and thinking, emotions rise. They do. We become very angry or excited when we hit foundation issues. So all I'm asking is this. Please hear everything I'm about to say. You have to hear it all. Then please listen again to the podcast that will be posted by tomorrow afternoon. Because sometimes you don't get everything in the first uh, setting. Then think about what the scriptures are saying and read it and study it. We have resources that you could study this passage in depth by people who have dedicated their lives to, to get at what it's saying, not what they think it's saying. So all the tools are there. And then talk about it. It's okay to disagree. But it's best if we talk about things that matter than rather than push them off. All right. So before we look at it, a couple of things we need to look at. One is the big picture. We always look at context. Romans 1 sits in a big argument. Romans 1, 18 through 320 make one big point. God is always right. We're not. So Paul's going to say again and again and again, if you are of the Jewish heritage, you're not always right. If you have no Jewish heritage, if you've never heard the scriptures, you're not always right. But there is one who's always right, and that is God. Now, if you don't believe that, that's okay. You just need to know that's the view that you get in the scriptures. You never see God as wrong in how he's revealed himself. So if, if God's always right and we're not, a lot of things are going to happen. This is just one, and we'll pick up again next week when you're back in Romans 2. I have three goals in mind, and I want to be very clear about what I'm trying to do and what I'm not trying to do. I'm going to let you know what those are. I want to look at God's vision for human flourishing first. It's one thing to say, I, I don't agree with. Well, let's just start with what God actually said. Second, we need to look at some important questions people are asking. You're asking. I'm asking. We're asking. And then we're just going to start. We can't do it all. We're going to consider our way forward. Based on what God has said, based on the questions people are asking, how do we actually move forward in addressing a culture that is continually moving against a biblical worldview and seems to be opposed to God's vision? How do I approach that? But before we do, I can only focus on a couple of things every week. So I want us to look, if you have your Bible, look at verse 28. 
because I want us to see where this fits, right? Furthermore, just jump down to verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so as people threw out God's vision, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so they do what ought not to be done. So God designs a way for life to work, but people, when they throw off God, end up being unlike God. And look at the list. It's a great Christmas list. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greedy, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, whatever that is, arrogant, boastful. This is a telling one. They invent ways of doing evil as if there weren't enough choices. We, when we throw God out of the picture, are creative. We disobey parents. That is, we we throw off authority. No understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. So, you know, if you've been naughty or nice, you're in trouble. You're in this list. Paul basically covers not every sin, but every area of life. Home life, community life, financial life, thinking life, action life, all of life. And he says, everyone that's thrown off God as having the right vision for the world ends up somewhere that God is not. Did you catch that? So that, that so what I want us to see is sin is so deeply tainted our souls, we don't even know how bad it is. Look at verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree... What's his righteous decree? Those who do such things deserve death. Those, if, if we're created and we have a creator and he made us to work a certain way, why should God bless us when we throw him off? The penalty is to be apart from God, which is the essence of death. God is a life. To be away from God is to be dying in part. It's to be out of the source. You have power in the battery, but the battery will run out if it is not charged by life. And so God says, but, but, but they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So Paul does not say we're that, we're so evil. Like no one did everything on that list. Nobody here. But here's what he's saying. We approve of those who practice them. So sin is not just I did it or I didn't. The sin of the heart is to approve of things that God is against. It's to throw off God in your mind and say, well, I wouldn't do that, but it's okay if they do that because God is not concerned. All that's based on a fundamental biblical worldview where God is the creator. All right, that's, that's the bad news. Let's go to a happier note. All right, happy place, happy place. Verse 24, God's vision for human flourishing. How did God make the world to not just work, but like really flourish? What's God's ideal? Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts too, and he lists off a bunch of things. Where does Paul Begin in this. God gave them over. I want us to see that. Paul uses three times in his text. Three times he says, God gave them over. Since they, God gave them over. Since they, God gave them over. He gave them over to to the sinful desires of their heart. He gave them over to shameful lust. He gave them over to a warped or a depraved mind. We saw it last week in part. What does God do in response to sin? He doesn't give immediate full judgment. If you got what you deserved, you wouldn't be sitting in that chair. Neither would I. If we got what we fully deserved right now, now it doesn't mean we're not guilty. It means God has withheld the rightful punishment we deserve. You are breathing. You should thank God. I should thank God. If I got what I really deserved right now, if I got justice, From my life yesterday, I would not be standing right here. So we need to take a step back and say, man, 
Don't mistake God's not giving us what we deserve with God's not watching. We make the mistake and we say, God's, well, he must be okay with it because I'm okay. We're not okay, but God's withheld his full and rightful judgment. So, so three times he says he's given us over. So what does God do in response to sin? Here's what he does. He lets us get what we want. Part of his judgment, in part, full judgment's coming. We can't get to that today. But in Romans, we're going to see in the future, there is full accounting of everything. But right now, what God does is he gives us what we want. So if we want lustful things more than him, have it. And the due penalty that comes with it. And when we look at the shrapnel of relational life in this world, when we look at hate, and when we look at all the distortions, can I just come against everything the culture is communicating? The world is not getting better. We may be getting richer, we may be gaining more knowledge, and we have a lot more toys. But there is more murder and hate in our lifetime than 100 years ago. And more people have been killed needlessly on this earth before they were born, while they were born, and needlessly, and we are guilty. So don't buy the cultural lie of progress. Progress in technology has only afforded us the ability to make up more ways to destroy God's good earth. We are good, but we are not what God has called us to be. Because of our own rebellion. All right. Now, Paul gives all these words, and I'm just going to list them out. Impurity, lie, serve created things, exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. What is Paul saying? Here's what we may not pick up on, because we're not as good at the Bible as probably this church was 2,000 years ago. Paul doesn't quote, but he alludes to Genesis 1 and 2. You see, Paul sees the world with biblical lenses. Not like, oh man, he just, he just likes the Bible. No, when I say biblical lenses, I mean God revelation lenses. What is the world like according to God? And so he immediately thinks about Genesis 1 and 2. I'm going to give you a few verses. You can jot them down. Genesis 2 verse 8. What is, what is a biblical worldview? The Lord planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he had formed. So God makes a garden, creates a man, and says, here, this is yours. Take care of it. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. So God creates a woman to partner with the man in a role. There's something to be done. Our, our maleness and femaleness is God designed for purpose? What is it? Genesis 2, 23. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. So men and women are both created not the same way. God makes the man out of the dust of the ground, whatever that means. Don't get literal on me. Out of what was already created, God created man is what it means. But then he makes woman a different way. Out of the side of the man comes the woman. So they're not exactly the same and duh, okay? We know that. But equally made by God, valued by God, image of God. They both have his imprint. They're different, but they are made for togetherness. The design of the designer is separate but connected Togetherness is God's goal. So Genesis 2.24, that's why a man leaves his father and mother is united with his wife and the two become one flesh. And Adam and his wife, not Adam and just someone. Did you catch that? Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So did Adam and Eve have, have a mother and father? No. But it says that's why a man leaves his father and mother. Well, Adam didn't leave his father and mother, and Eve didn't leave father and mother. So what in the world is going on? 
You see, what's going on is from the beginning, it's not just about the beginning. It's about the design and intention of God for the world. Early on, as Moses gives us Genesis, he gives us God's creation and the reason. The reason Adam, different, Eve, different, brought together is what God was going to do in his world. So Adam and Eve are the visible representation, the prototype for how the human race is to grow, expand, and partner with God in his creation project. This is a a God-revealing view of the world. That is the intention. So they're also the first example of human sexuality. And they are the, the imprint there, naked, Sex, no shame, one man, one woman, united in marriage. That's why they leave families, which are the deepest relationships known. They leave those deep relationships, form a new deep relationship, united, and and Adam is with his wife. And that's why someone leaves their home and goes with their husband or wife. It's not just about convenience and how You can live your life. God says there is a design. This is God's plan. Now, some would say, well, that's great, but that's that's just Genesis. Well, here's how we read the Bible. It's one continuous story from the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelation. Every part of it is important. I'm going to tell you how we read the Bible as a church because this is important. Every book is important and has an author, so the author's intent matters. What Moses is doing in Genesis matters. We need to see it as Moses is getting God's revelation and giving it to us. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they matter. And what Paul writes matters. And what Luke writes matters. What Peter writes matters. But all of the writers sit within one writing. And so... All of them fit in a larger story that God is sharing. So I can't take 1 Peter or Revelation and just say, I'm going to focus on that. Because it only makes sense in God's larger story. So here's what I want you to know. And here, this is how we read the Bible as a church. It's not how everyone reads the Bible. It's how we read the Scriptures. And everything that we believe comes out of how we read what we read. And here's how we read it. Genesis 1 and 2 is repeated again and again and again and again throughout the Bible. So Jesus is going to quote this nearly verbatim when people ask him, is it okay to divorce my wife? And Jesus' answer, did you not read what God has said from the beginning? And he quotes it, and by the way, he quotes it to say, you guys are too loose on the way you divorce people. You've missed the heart of God. And you don't know the author's intent. And then Paul, in Ephesians 5, he's going to quote this almost word for word in talking about the husband and the wife and Jesus and the church. The physical working of man and woman And the larger story of God redeeming his people is tied to love and respect of the one husband and one wife relationship. So Genesis 2 is the standard. By the way, all of Israel is told to avoid certain sexual behavior because of Genesis 1 and 2. God's standard for his people, Israel, is about fidelity to the one man, one woman relationship. So all the other nations treat sexuality different. And guess what? God says, they don't know my heart. So they're doing things that feel natural, but aren't my design. So my people, called by my name, don't mimic the culture when it goes against me. It will not go well for you. I'm going to put a statement. It's on our website. If you're interested, this is what we believe. God created marriage to be the lifelong covenant between one natural-born man and one natural-born woman. And we have to add the natural-born because of confusion today about what it means to have a gender and express that. 
We just see this as, as God's revelation from cover to cover. So here's the challenge, and this is why I say this. There are only six to ten actual passages about homosexual behavior. And moving forward, I'm just going to use the word gay as a not being disrespectful. But I could say LGBTQ every time, and I will go tongue-tied. So I'm just, just to help me, I'm just going to use an encompassing word without trying to make a point. My only point is I want to move on, right, in terms of speech. So there's only gay, six to ten gay passages that it's even mentioned. But behavior follows worldview. So the biblical story gives a very broad view of the world. In other words, you don't need just to have to have a passage about gay expression to mean the heart of God. The way God treats the one man, one woman relationship in all of its aberrations, in all of its shortcomings. In other words, uh, a, a husband cheating on a wife is always seen as wrong. Always to God. Why? Because God doesn't want us to be satisfied? No. But because God designed men and women to be in a lifelong covenant relationship. So every expression. So the Bible is not pointing the finger at one aspect of the community, whether gay or straight. Rather, the scriptures are unfolding a beautiful picture of the vision of how the world is supposed to work. And it's not my world. Hear me. A biblical worldview says it's God's world. I have the right to follow God in his world or I do have the right to ignore him. But Romans 1 is going to begin to let us know what happens when we ignore him. All right, so what is happening? Look again at verse, just go to verse 26. Because we choose to ignore God, verse 26, because of this, our rebellion, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the, the dual penalty of their error. So God designs us to follow him and then he gives us over. You want it? Okay. You want it more than me? Okay. Um, all right. Go for it. And, and everything that comes with it. So the, the, verb, the, 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 the phrase I want you to see here is we exchange. When God gives us over to ourselves, we end up exchanging. Instead of one man, one woman for life, we exchange it, forgetting God designed it to, to work one way. So when the NIV, which is a good translation here, says exchange natural relations for unnatural ones, it's not talking about, like, what's natural for me. That's what we want to make it. It's what is according to the nature in which it was intended. So one definition about nature is God's established order of things. Men and women exchanged God's established order of things for unnatural ones, ones that God did not design them for. Now I want, I want us to pause and breathe because already you can see we're getting on the same page is very hard because our foundation is either built on a God-revealed way or something else. And there are lots of other alternatives, and I'm not, saying, I'm not saying this is the popular one. I'm saying this is one of many options on which to view the world. All I want you to hear is your behavior comes from the foundation of what you think is right and true. So we're going to get to the questions we're asking about how we live this out, but I just want to get to the heart of it. The way I view the world will affect the way I live in the world. And God is very clear 
in Scripture about how he created the world. And when we choose to rebel, now let me go back to the list. Remember the Santa Claus list before about murder and strife and disobedience? You could say the same thing about all of those. We want to make the whole thing about this one because it's where, where our culture is clashing with God's worldview. But you can make this case for anger. You can make this case for anything. We've warped it all. I'm going to focus though on sexuality because it's the one passage. It's the longest passage we have in all of the Bible about human sexuality. So I want to focus on that without you thinking that's all this is about. This is just one, but it's important. Now, we can't do it all this morning because we love you, but um, we, we can't cover it all. But John Mark Comer, dear friend, um, wrote a book called Loveology. It came out of a conference that our, our group of churches have done over the years. And I, I think it's the best recently written, written book on a biblical worldview of human sexuality. And he got it to us just at, at his author's cost. So if you've not read it or had not read it recently, we have copies, about 50, uh, that are on sale for 10 bucks just because that, literally that's cost. And, and if you have trouble, 10 bucks is too much, I will personally buy this book for you. If you say, I really can't afford it. Um, if you're lying, our Christmas fund is going to be depleted because of you, but I'm going to assume you're not lying. <laughs> and... Um, so in it, uh, there is a chapter called gay. Again, he's using it not in a derogatory word, but to encompass a different worldview. And you are going to find it very helpful. So I, I, I encourage you to get that. It's online on Kindle, but we have it here for $10. For $10. And then as a follow-up, knowing this is an important issue, January 15th, we do these 26 West Church studies, these more in-depth topical studies. We just did one on Islam. The next one will be on this topic called Homosexuality, a Redemptive Response. Where are you going to be able to ask Q&A? We have a guest teacher who's going to do part of it. Uh, Jason Thompson, some of you know him. He's from Portland Fellowship. And this is his story. He, he comes from um, practicing homosexuality. He encountered Jesus. And I'm going to let him tell his story. And, and we want to answer questions and really wrestle with it over a two-hour period as opposed to what we're going to do this morning, okay? So it's coming up. You can sign up online now. Go to our main page. Go to the bottom. You can sign up for that study. All right, so that's a, a, a God's vision for human flourishing, point one. That was the first thing I wanted to do. Second thing I want to do, and these will be quicker, because the book is a resource and the study will be helpful. I want to look at just three of the questions that we're facing that are probably the biggest, and start to answer them. I can't do it all, but I'm going to start. First one is this. The scriptures don't really teach that gay sex is wrong. And there is, as opposed to any other time in world history, you're living in an interesting time, there has never been so much of an attack against what the scriptures are teaching. The attack has usually been, oh, you got to be kidding me. That book's not authoritative. Or that's just written by men. It's not like a real spiritual book. And there's some answers to those questions. But now you have people who are saying, I love and follow Jesus. I'm one of his followers. And I believe the Bible is not saying that gay sex is wrong. And here are the texts. And here's where I think the text is really speaking. And the church has gotten it wrong for 2,000 years. And these are good Arguments, I've read them. They're just not complete. You see, for the first time, people are saying Romans 1 is not about natural in terms of what God designed nature to be. Now, the argument is nature has to do with the way you express your sexuality. So, it would be unnatural if you're if your heart is, I'm a guy, if my heart is for a woman, that's natural for me. It would be unnatural for me to want a man. Because if my heart is bent towards a woman, I should be with a woman. But what Paul is saying is in Rome, 
and in first century life, that would be natural. But if it's natural for me to be attracted, I'm a man, to other men, that's what's natural for me. You see the twist? Natural has to do with your personal inclination. Textually, there's no grounds for that whatsoever. And I could cite you the book and the sources, and I could tell you, based on those sources, worldview is where that response comes from. I don't have time to go into jot and tittle, and I don't want to mention every author by name because we don't have the time to give them their fair shake. But for everything that is being cited against the, what's called the traditional, because it's been held for 2,000 years, the traditional Christian worldview, the attack on the texts do not hold up. Do not hold up. You say, well, I'm not a Bible scholar. You don't have to be. I'm telling you, there are Bible scholars who have answers to the very real questions people are asking. But that's the big one. The argument is now saying, I can be gay-affirming and Jesus-loving and a Christian, and if you don't allow me into the church, you're being judgmental. Part of the argument here, which makes it off, in my opinion, is history. When you say natural is what I feel it to be, rather than natural is God's specific designation, in the first century, homosexuality was widely practiced. As a matter of fact, Caesar Nero, who's in power, emperor of Rome, around the time of Paul, is married to a 12-year-old boy. So the cultures that Paul was writing to already affirmed same-sex activity more than we do. And Paul is writing in that culture and saying that may be your bent and it may be your natural inclination in terms of your desire, but that's not the design. And I know we got to pause because I'm speaking about feelings. So Jews were always against homosexual practice or gay practice because of what the scriptures had revealed about God. Even though the Jewish people always lived in cultures that affirmed other expressions. So God called his people to look at the cultures around them and say, those expressions may be real, but they're not truest if you want to follow God. Okay, that's tough. That's a tough one. Now let's go to a more difficult one. Um, I'm gay. That's who I am. And this is probably the most emotionally charged. And I'm married with two children. So it's, it's tough for me to challenge feelings that someone has for someone else. And I recognize that. Hear me. I recognize that. So here's, here's the short response. Loveology and other resources go into more detail. Let me just ask, who are you? You say, well, I'm, I'm gay. That's who I am. I'm straight. Um, I'm lesbian. I'm bisexual. What, whatever that expression, let me just ask you, at a fundamental worldview, is that identity marker the most true thing about you? Is gay, lesbian, straight, Bisexual, are those the most true thing about you? Now, God's vision as seen in the scriptures shows, shows that he made male and female. And in, in a larger sense, he made human. Those are the identity markers you see in, in scripture. He made, Genesis 1 and 2, he made male, he made female, he made human. Those are markers that are most fundamental. This is going to be a tough one to swallow because we're living in it. But the whole discussion of gender orientation, which is, you just see it all over, it's a completely modern argument that's less than 100 years old. So part of the challenge is that people are really wrestling with what it means to have a gender and what it means to express your gender. It is a very modern thing when you look at the span of humanity. We're asking questions that were not asked in depth 300 years ago. 
So it's okay that we're trying to figure out answers to that. Here's what I can say from Scripture, because here's the challenge when you come to feeling. You're going to get all sorts of answers that are based on experience. And they're very real experience. And I'm not downplaying experience. And I'm not downplaying feeling. But it's tough to form a solid view based on your own feeling. And so here's what I can say from Scripture. If it's God's revelation, I'm making that assumption. Here's the truest thing about you and me. Ephesians 5, 1 through 11. I'm going to put it on the screen in just shortened form, but all of it is good. Follow God's example. Could stop there. God has an example. Follow it. As what? And look at these identity markers. As dearly loved children. And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not even be a hint of of sexual immorality, which is every other view of sex other than the way God designed it. Or any other kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper. Look at this identity marker. For God's holy people. You were once darkness, now you're light in the Lord, so live as children of the light. I want you to hear again the truest things about you. Dearly loved, holy people, light in the Lord. So can I make a suggestion? What God says about you is the truest thing. It's the truest thing that there is. So our culture is shouting that sexual orientation is the truest thing. And that needs to be honored more than anything. And I'm just going to say that the scriptures tell a different story altogether. That the truest thing about you is that you can live in the light and that you can know love and that you are holy in God. And so God is calling us to align our sexual passions into his vision. Now the good news here. Is, is that Jesus came not just to show us what is right and true, but to bring us to what is right and true. And that when you step into faith in him, and when you enter the waters of baptism, you become a child of God. In other words, you were in darkness, but now God brings you into his light. Pause. That doesn't mean my appetites change. Doesn't mean I become a follower of Jesus. And if I'm a male and, and I have passion for other men, it doesn't mean I follow Jesus and those passions leave. It does not mean that. It means I can walk in the light as God defines us. He gives us his very Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying this is going to be easy, but I am here to say in Jesus, this is possible. It is possible to live God-honoring with whatever your sexuality is, to live God-honoring because God made male and female and we've broken all of it and sin has hit every part of life, every part of life. Greed and lust and hate, every bit of it. But when it comes to sexuality, we just simply believe that Jesus changes everything and we have to factor Jesus when we think of redemption and hope. Now, I know people in this community, this isn't theory, in this room that I've seen this morning who at once in life were engaged in gay practice and Jesus has done something in their world that has changed them at the deepest level. And there's actually been change. Real change. Doesn't mean desire and passion is gone, but it means God's opened up a way for them to express love through someone of the opposite sex and have family and honor God with their sexuality. So, so to say like, well, that's, that's impossible. Well, that's, that's, that statement is impossible. Because in Jesus, all things are possible. So the question becomes, and this is the, the, the bigger question, whose vision of life are you going to believe? Whose vision are you going to walk out? Your, the culture's, a combination? Or are we going to say that God's view is 
most important, so I'm going to live out God's view. Now, i got to pause again and say, like, that's hard when you say, Jose, that's easy for you to say. Well, actually, it's not, and here's why. The third question I want to address, and I'm going to deal very quickly about how we move forward as a community, and we'll pick up next week on fleshing out point three. I can't help my attractions. It's a very real issue. You say, Jose, I, I have gay attraction. You're telling me to go against like a very strongest of urges. How could you do that? And I want to clarify, attraction is something expressed and felt by everyone in this room. And as one of your pastors, I have attractions. We all have attractions. So you may be a you may be attracted to someone of the same sex, opposite sex, both. We all have attractions. I'm just going to say sometimes my attractions are helpful. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes my attractions are going to get me out of sync and the rhythm of God. So it's normal, hear me, it's normal to have feelings that are outside of God's vision. <laughs> it's called being human. Every day I have feelings, drives, passions that are outside of God's vision. That's why the scripture gives us lists to remind us when you think you are in the right, be careful. Because God's vision is clear. So the whole list that we get in Romans 1 is, is not meant to point the finger. <laughs> you got to read Romans 2 and Romans 3 because it's the setup to say, apart from Jesus, no one has hope. Because we're all off in our attraction at some level. So you might be a guy who's married to a woman and you're attracted to other women. Which, that hits everyone. I'm just going to, because I'm a guy, I'll speak in the guy, but you could do it in reverse. So every married person here is attracted to other women. Don't lie to yourself. And your wife is smarter. <laughs> we're all attracted. Now, does that mean I'm sinful? No. It is when I allow that attraction to grow to lust and desire. And then when I act out of lust and desire and I'm unfaithful to my spouse, then that becomes a sin. So please hear me. I am not trying to say if you are dealing with same-sex attraction, that by very design, you are evil. I am not saying that one bit, but I'm saying that giving in to anything that's not in line with God's vision for the world will take you away from God's vision. It won't bring you closer. Pornography. So being a guy, I have a wife. So me giving my life and emotion and lust to pictures of other women, that is included in Romans 1. What he's saying is, that shows that I've given my heart over to other evil desires. Whenever we don't fight for our marriage and say like, well, it's not working out, so I'm going to throw her off. Not literally, obviously, but I'm going to throw off that relationship and I'm going to start anew. Whenever we do all of these things that are outside of God's vision, it takes us farther from the heart of God, not closer. But let's not limit it to marriage. You say, I'm, I'm young. Full of fire. I've got desires. Sex before marriage is outside of Genesis 1 and 2. Um, you say, well, I love her and we're going to get married. Well, sex before marriage is outside of God's vision. Gay attraction and gay sex is just one of many visions that are outside of God's heart. So I'm not going to make it so high that it's pointing out one part in our community or so low that we ignore it. I'm, I'm not asking you to change your desires. Just why can't you just like the same sex or the opposite sex? Why can't you just, that would be evil of me to say that to you. I don't know why. I don't know why anyone has any attraction. But what I can say is that when we factor Jesus into all of life and 
submit ourselves to God's vision in all of life, he's provided a way for me to live out his vision. So I am saying, Jesus said, if you really want to be my follower, the toughest words, you are going to have to deny yourself. Stop. Deny anything that is outside of God's vision. You want to really be my follower? Then you're going to have to deny that your view of the world is better than God's and then take up my cross. That's for all of us. I'm not speaking to my gay friends here this morning. That's, I'm speaking to everyone that's married, everyone that's single, everyone that's breathing. Human sexuality is precious to God and it has all sorts of effects. And he's calling all of us to live out his vision, not our own. So Romans 8 and Romans is so powerful. We're not going to be there for a few months. So I want to read a few words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that gives us life, set you free from the law of sin and death. Now he's speaking to followers of Jesus. The Spirit of God does something in you that gives you the ability to know God's vision and walk in it. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Holy Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Again, rather, no. The Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship or daughtership. Relationship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with your spirit, you are a child of God. Your greatest identity is not your sexual desire and passion. Your greatest identity, if you're in Jesus, is that you belong to Jesus, who is remaking all of us. So anger and slander and bitterness are as evil to God as sexual sin. So what he's doing is he gives us the Holy Spirit who's exposing my sin bent and giving me what I need to live in the right. Not so that it can become a child of God, but because I am a child of God. You see the difference? Because I become a child of God, I can now live as his child. Not like if I get my gender thing right, then God will accept me. No, you come to Jesus as is and you allow God to do his remaking work. Okay, third one, and I'm just going to touch. What's our way forward? How do, we, how do we move forward in this? How do I respond? Because we all feel like helpless. We either dumb it down and say nothing, or we end up being in the camp that's just mean. And by the way, I'm not in that camp. It's pointing fingers at everybody, and they just look at their own life, and it's all hypocritical. Romans 2 tells us, verse 1, we're going to look at it next week. You, therefore, at 26westchurch.org, have no excuse. You pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you're just condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. When he says the same things, he's thinking about the whole list. You see, you're pointing the finger at gay and you're full of anger. And to God, all of them are outside of his vision. So we need to stop and just let that sink in. So there's no place, and we'll tease this out next week, there's no place for any of us to go around judging other people as condemned by God when they are deeply loved by God. That doesn't mean we don't share God's vision. It doesn't mean we ignore God's vision. It doesn't mean we belittle God's vision. But we value that people matter to God. Therefore, I want to love people. And in loving people, somehow present God's vision in a way that they can wrestle with God and let God deal with them with love. Now here's the challenge. The church is divided on this issue. This is what makes it so squirrely. Some churches are affirming gay marriage and gay practice as in tune with following the way of Jesus. This is why this is so hard for us. Because we have brothers and sisters who are now saying as entire churches, we are not asking anyone to change. We just believe 
that as long as it's monogamous, everyone agrees fooling around is wrong. As long as it's monogamous and the law is on their side, we're not going to say anything different. We're not there as a church. And that might sound like the most unloving thing I could say, but you just need to know the reason we are not there, nor will we ever be there, is not from six to ten texts. It's because the entire sweeping story of God covers all of life in every age, in every stage. And God's sweeping vision for the world is one natural-born man with one natural-born woman in covenant love for life. Who are we as a people to say that God's vision is any different than how he's revealed it? So because the way we read the scriptures is beginning to end, is all one story, that's why we get there. I can see why other brothers and sisters read it differently because mostly it's discounting texts that are looked at as antiquated because they had to do with Israel. And Israel as a nation is no longer the people of God because of the work of Jesus. We just don't read the Bible that way. We can still, though, disagree and love one another. I have no problem having a conversation with another pastor of another church saying, here's why we're not with you on this. But I'm not going to badmouth them to you. We're going to show love and respect because the moment I point the finger, the rest of them are just pointed at me and my own brokenness. So we uphold the scriptures as God's revelation for all of us. It's God's vision. But the same token we say, God loves broken people and he sent his son to save. So bottom line, and, and I know this has gone long on purpose. I wanted to do this over two weeks and they're like, there's no cliffhanger without making someone mad. So we waited to get you all in the room together to say this. <laughs> you can't walk out without feeling weird. If you're involved, you say, Jose, that's my story. It's, it's hit me or it's hit my child or it's hit my spouse. It's where we're at. You just need to know there are loving people in this community who actually identify with your story. And Jesus is making a difference in their world. And I want to put you in touch with them because the best thing we could do is love one another and hear from one another in real relational love without judgment. We can't do this together on a stage. So I try to figure out multiple ways to do this, and this is the only thing I came up with. I was going to send you just to a generic email that we'd made up, make up and have that, those people access that email. And I thought, that's just getting weird. So I'm going to ask that you trust me. Since I did the talking, if this is an issue, would you please just email me? Go to serve on the website, my photo. It's just J-O-S-E at 26westchurch.org. Email me. And I will accept your email in 100% confidence. And all I'm going to do is pray for you and put you in touch with people in our church who have walked through this themselves. They're the best men and women to love you and hear from you and identify with you and walk with you without condemnation. I promise you to do that if you'll take that step of faith and trust. And and no one else is going to see the email. I'm going to get it to those people who actually have walked through this here. So email me. All right. But that's not, that's not all of us. So what do the rest of us do? We allow God the Spirit to expose whatever's on that long list that I'm already off on. So you may be on on your vision for sexuality, but you may be off in another area. Hear me. Jesus wants to redeem it all. And so I'm going to invite the band to come up now. And what I'm going to do is don't move, sit. Sometimes we go from one thing to the next, and our heart is still like in this place. So I want you just to sit in this place. This next song is new to us as a church. The words will be on the screen. You don't have to sing it if you don't want to. But it's a prayer. The song is a prayer. So while you're seated and you're saying, Holy Spirit, what is it that I need to have retuned to your vision for the world? 
as the song is sung, put yourself in the lyrics. Put yourself in the prayer. And then about midway, we're going to invite you to stand and make this a confession, a song of repentance. Because we're all off. The only question is, where are you off? We all need grace. The only question is, where do you need grace? We're all apart from God, apart from Jesus. The only answer is, what area of your life needs Jesus? And so we want to come to him and respond in worship, all right? Lord, we love you. Now we sit under the truth. We've heard it. And now we want to hear it in song so that we can tune our heart to your ways. Lord, we're, we're after you, Lord. We're after you.